couple of things that I need to mention. One is, if you're a guest with us this morning, you'll find in the back of the pew in front of you a card. We'd love to have you fill that card out. You can just place that on the pew where you're sitting, and someone later on, after everybody is gone, will pick those up, but we'd love to have you fill that out just so we have a record of your attendance. You'll see one side is a, kind of a membership card. The other side has prayer request opportunities on there. If you have something you want us to pray about, our elders are faithful about praying about the things that come on the cards. And so please uh, fill those out and say, we need to pray about this, and I guarantee you our elders will. Next week is family camp, so be aware of that. Am I right about that? Yes. Next weekend is family camp. So if you aren't yet going to register for family camp, if Mark Lewis doesn't know that you're going and you're planning on going, please make sure that Mark Lewis knows that you are going to be going to family camp. And I suppose it's true if you're decided not to go. You need to let Mark know if you've already let him know you're going. And then one sad note that I want to pray about right now uh, is Ernie Amonti came up to me just before our service started and said that his mother passed away last night. And so we want to be praying uh, for the Amante family. Would you bow with me, please? Holy Father, it seems like no matter how elderly someone is and no matter what's going on in their life, when, when someone passes away, it always affects us so deeply. In fact, there's even a sense of shock, even when we know that death is coming, when, when we suddenly find out that indeed it has come it always surprises us it's always a shock it hurts and so i'd pray that you'd be with ernie and with christy and their family this morning i'd pray that you'd be with those who might be still in the philippines who love ernie's mom bless them father give them comfort and peace father we just want to we want one day to be united with our loved ones in glory with you and we look forward to that day in fact i pray this morning that you bring it quickly it's through jesus we pray Amen. If you are a parent this morning, you have little kids with you this morning, you're thinking, what am I going to do during the sermon time with them? Right back next to Mark Desi on the bench. Megan's going through the bags right now. There are some bags. We'd love to have you get one of those, and you can do something with that bag as far as your kiddos. That gives them something to do. So feel free to do that. In fact, while they're doing that, we haven't done this in a while, why don't we just stand up, look around, and say hi to somebody that you don't know this morning, okay? Stand up and greet one another. Thank you, everyone. You can take a seat now if you'd like. Okay, that's enough joy and love. Could we, could we please stop loving one another and sit down? It was, it was in 1982 that I began to think of Christian worship differently than I ever had before. I wasn't raised in the churches of Christ. I came to be a Christian when I was almost 15 years old in 1973. So I'd been a Christian for about nine years or so. I was now entering a position in full-time ministry. Robin and I moved to Southern California and started working with a church uh, in Los Angeles, in Long Beach, actually. And it was there that I started thinking about how unbiblical, okay, I'll use that expression this morning, how unbiblical it was 
to think about worship the way that I had been taught in churches of Christ. Now, you might think to yourself, what kind of blasphemous sermon are we about to hear? I don't think it's blasphemous. I do think that it's different than where we sometimes have been. There are at least two kinds of teaching that I'd heard that I began to question back then, and everything changed for me. And for those of you who aren't in Churches of Christ, if you don't have that background because you, uh, you can't read your Bibles, because you can't read in your Bibles any kind of commandment about there being five acts of worship, this might seem a bit odd for you, okay, that we would even discuss this kind of thing. But early in the history of Churches of Christ, we started talking about the idea of there being five acts of worship. It's interesting. We, we came up with the idea that preaching, singing, praying, giving financially, and sharing together the Lord's Supper is the list of those things that our forefathers taught and some even today teach. And some say that there are still just five acts of worship to which we're limited in our worship to the Lord. And to do something beyond these, we sometimes talk about, would be to violate biblical teaching about what worship is supposed to be. And it was interesting. This is not in any way a knock on Miles, but you notice that during the Lord's Supper, Miles even made reference to this. He talked about some things and said, you know, we need to have joy and that kind of thing. And, and then he said, we need to have the Lord's Supper right at the center. And he said, along with our praying and our preaching and our giving, and he named those things. And he said, this isn't just something on the list. You said that. And he's right. The Lord's Supper is not just something on a list, but sometimes we have acted as though it is just one of those five things that is on the list. Well, we don't have time this morning to go into all kinds of length about all of this, but there's at least three problems with this conclusion that there are five acts of worship. The first one is this, if this will click. There we go. The New Testament, from what I can tell, never limits nor commands that the number of worshipful acts is to be limited, and certainly not to five, nor does it use the expression five acts of worship. Now, I think it's interesting that we kind of coined this phrase that there are five acts of worship when that in itself is not a biblical idea. We're the people who've always said that we want to do biblical things in biblical ways with biblical language. This is not in the Bible. And to talk about there being five acts of worship, from what I can tell, is not biblical. It's unbiblical terminology. In fact, I can only find once. I looked through about seven or eight English translations of the Bible this week. I can only find one case where the expression act of worship is found. And it's in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And in that passage... The Bible says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And then it's interesting because in later editions of the NIV, they changed that and they got rid of that language. And now it says, this is your true and proper worship. It was in the 1985 edition of the NIV that it says the act of worship. Other than that, you're not going to find it in an English translation. So this is not biblical language for us to talk about a certain number of acts of worship. It's not in the Bible. We can put it in there if we want, 
but we're the people who said we don't like to do that. Now, my point with all of that is that it troubles me that the notion that there are five acts of worship has become such a big deal for us when there is absolutely no biblical precedent for this idea. But for a long time, that's what we taught, as if this was biblically founded. And I think that's a problem. If, there, if, being only, if there's only five acts of worship, I should say, was important to the Lord... If the Lord had said, you know what, there's going to be five acts of worship I want the church to participate in, I think he would have given us the list. I think God would have said, this is so important. The way they worship me on Sunday morning is really important. There are five acts of worship. I want to make sure that these are the ones they do. I'm going to give them the list. But he doesn't. You won't find that anywhere in the New Testament. It simply isn't to be found. So that's a problem. The second thing is this. And this is kind of like the same, but it's a little bit different. There is no biblical precedent for limiting the things we do in worship to a list of commands or biblical examples or things that can be inferred from the early church. There is no biblical precedent for limiting these things. We do find examples. We do find precedents. But there is nothing biblical about limiting ourselves to those precedents and saying This is all we can do. Nowhere in the New Testament will you find such an idea. Nowhere does the Bible ever say, and God could have easily said this, nowhere does it say anything like, make sure your worship to the Lord is limited in such and such ways. It's not there. In fact, one cannot find any instance of any kind of list whatsoever in the New Testament that tells us what is supposed to be part of Christian worship. Jesus doesn't give one. Paul doesn't give one. John doesn't give one. Peter doesn't give one. And to me, that is absolutely remarkable. Because God, in the Old Testament, gives us all the details about how we're supposed to worship. And then in the New Testament, you can search high and low and not find any kind of list like that of any kind. One of the things that stands out then between the new covenant of Jesus and the law of Moses is just this, a lack of biblical teaching about the specifics that are supposed to be part of Christian worship. It simply isn't there, and it could have been so easily. Like if that was on God's mind, He could have just said, here's the list. And he doesn't do it. Well, I think that all that space given to the Old Testament and none of that space given to the New Testament is noteworthy. It has to be taken seriously. Paul could have given us the list, but he doesn't. Nowhere do we find the things that are listed that says, this is what we want you to do on the first day of the week. We know the early church did some things, but there is no requirement listed, no list listed, nothing that says, and this is what you two are supposed to do. You just won't find it. The third thing. There are many more things given as commands and examples for us in the New Testament that the early church did in worship than merely five. 
And so if we were to find a list, if we were to compile a list, we would have to compile a list that included way more things than just five. Let me give you the example, and this is the one that will cause you the most discerning, or I should say uh, disarming kind of uh, mindset. Do you know what's commanded more than anything else just about for us to do in any kind of worshipful or fellowship kind of context? Greet one another with a holy kiss. Five times in the New Testament, Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Go. Huh? Why are we not? We are so inconsistent when it comes to some of these things. 1 Timothy 4.13 says this, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Two out of the three are not in the list of five. Because we don't talk about how we're supposed to do the public reading of Scripture, even though it specifically says that, and we don't make teaching part of what we do on Sunday morning. We do talk about preaching, but we don't do teaching. Two out of three are specifically not listed in our five. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. But this is certainly different than preaching the gospel. And yet we have not made being devoted to the apostles' teaching part of what we try and do specifically on Sunday mornings. Jude 12, and I've alluded to this before in talking about the Lord's Supper, Jude 12 makes mention of the love feasts that the early church practiced and which often included the Lord's Supper. We don't make the love feasts part of what we do. It's not one of the five acts. It was for the early church. Not one of the five acts, but it was one of the things they did. The early church broke bread in their homes. Well, if that's talking about the Lord's Supper, which I think it was, we certainly don't bind that on ourselves. The early church met every day in the temple courts. Now, we don't have temple courts, but we can meet here every day. I'll be here tomorrow. Come and join me. And I'll be here Tuesday. I'll be here Wednesday. I'll be here Thursday. I may come down on Friday if you said you're going to be here. Saturday, I'll be here. Let's do it every day next week. The early church did, but we haven't made that part of our five acts of worship. Men everywhere to lift their holy hands in prayer, according to 1 Timothy 2.8. I don't see the guys lifting their holy hands in prayer. Now, it could be that they're not holy. Or it could be that you just don't lift your hands. But the Bible specifically says that we're supposed to do that. The early church is told to offer our bodies as living sacrifices and to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But we don't count that as something we do on Sunday morning as part of the five Acts, even though that's the one place in that one version of the NIV that I mentioned that says that we have an act of worship. When the early church met every day, they did so with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. And what's interesting about that is the number of times that in the New Testament people praise the Lord verbally, where someone says, praise the Lord. When's the last time that happened in our church where someone praised the Lord? Think about that. Nor do we bind on each other the specific act of fellowship or sharing. Like we, a moment ago, we shared some fellowship, if you want to call it that. We certainly don't bind that on each other. But it specifically says that that's one of the things the early church focused on in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. So there are, I could go on. Like, I don't know how many that is. Close to 10 extra so-called acts of worship beyond the five. 
So we have at least 15, and I think we could keep going. And my point, of course, is, is to limit ourselves to worship in five acts is woefully wrong. Because thinking of worship as limited number of acts done on a Sunday morning, period, is wrong. This is the place where the Holy Spirit is changing our churches, correcting an interpretive and doctrinal error. And praise the Lord, he is. Okay? I want you to look at this passage again with me. Look at this, Acts 2, 42, 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. That's interesting. I guess we could all come and share everything next Sunday morning, bring all of our possessions down here and pass them around. They sold property and possessions to give anyone who had need. Well, some of you might be needy. Maybe some of the rest of us need to sell. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It makes you wonder that if maybe we did 15 acts of worship instead of five, that the Lord would be adding to our number more rapidly than he does. Well, something that I want to talk about this morning specifically is found in verses 46 and 47. It starts with every day. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. We may choose not to meet every day, even though the early church did. We may choose not to break bread in our homes, even though the early church did. We may choose not to greet each other with a holy kiss, but the early church did. But it seems to me there's at least one thing we better not let go of here that the early church was doing, and that is worshiping the Lord with glad and sincere hearts and praising God needs to be right at the heart of what we do in worship always. And now I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Second Samuel chapter 6. This is a great passage. And this is the story where David goes to retrieve the ark and bring it back to Jerusalem. And to set it up in Jerusalem at the center of worship, which at this point was the tabernacle. And in verse 3 it says, They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahil, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahil was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps and lyres and tambourines, sistrums and cymbals. Now this is a picture of incredible joy. They're bringing the ark into the city of Jerusalem, which for, me, for them means an incredible summation of everything that they had been headed toward. God promised a long time ago that they were going to receive this place, 
that they would have a place of their own. And David is now acknowledging that the time has come. God is setting up this special place for them to worship him. So there's this incredible display of joy that takes place. Now there's the issue here of Uzzah, where he re- reaches out and touches the ark. I don't, I don't want to do a whole lot with that. Clearly there's a problem with Uzzah not respecting the ark the way that he should. And the Lord's anger actually burns against Uzzah, and there's a, there's a significant problem. In fact, through the whole course of the event, David becomes quite frightened about all that's going on here with even the ark. Even as he has this great joy, he's at the same time frightened by what's going on with the Lord as the ark is not adequately uh, revered. Now look at verse 12. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. This is amazing. They are, are enjoying so much their worship before the Lord. And this event is so joyous for them that every six step, steps, as Jonathan mentioned before, they stop and sacrifice an animal. This is taking a huge amount of time as they worship God. David, wearing a linen ephod, which kind of means that David is in his underwear... Okay, danced before the Lord with all his might while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and, and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. And here's what I want us to see first. That David's joyful heart and worship is supposed to be ours. And the reason I say that is because David is a man after God's own heart. And what God wants from us more than anything is to be after his heart the way that David was. And we just can't do this unless we honor God with all of our hearts and therefore with all of our joy. Our excitement before the Lord needs to be expressed. And we need to honor God with just this kind of heart. I want you to look at this passage again. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now that's the NIV. And I don't like this translation at all. And there's a good reason for me not to like it. It's because of the word glad. I don't like the word glad. When I think of glad, I think of sandwich bags. The Greek word here is a galeosis, which is so much more than the word glad. Glad is like when you find a $10 bill in your pocket that you didn't know you had. Okay, and you say, wow, I'm really glad to have this $10 bill. Glad is what you are when you find out that you've been let out of jury duty. Glad is what you are when you see it's raining and you just fertilized your lawn. Okay, that's glad. A galeosis is what you are when you win the lottery. 
A galeosis is what you are when you find out that instead of having terminal cancer, you're given a clean bill of health. A galeosis is what you are when you find out that after four days of thinking that your son was killed during the earthquake, when the building in which he was living collapsed, that he was actually backpacking in the mountains for the last four days and didn't even know that there had been an earthquake. And so he couldn't call you to tell you he was okay. That's what a galeosis is. And the point is, is that when you've realized what Jesus Christ has done for you, all of a sudden, there is a joy there, there is an excitement there, where the creator of the universe has saved you through the sacrifice of his son. And it means everything for that to have happened. Your sins are no longer counted against you. You now have the opportunity to live forever with this God and with this people and with the world that he's created for us to live in. A world in which there's no more death and no more crying and no more sadness and no more sickness, no more broken hearts, no more mistreatment of others. And this new truth, this new understanding wells up inside of us with an overflowing abundance of joy and excitement so much that it can't be contained and it certainly can't be limited to five specific acts of worship. And that's what David is doing as he dances before the Lord. Do you know that there is absolutely no precedent for this in the Old Testament anywhere? For what David does. You can search the law. You will not find in the Old Testament law, in the Mosaic law, anything like what David does here. How in the world does he do it? Does he have authority to do this? He doesn't. But he has a heart that does this. He has a heart that says, I cannot contain my joy and what God has done for me. There were lots of commands about how to conduct worship. Hundreds of commands about how to do worship in the Old Testament. But this was a man whose heart was seeking after God. And he wasn't about to be limited to the commands that were there about how to worship. Instead, he enters into worship with a reckless kind of abandonment. And an exuberant joy that can't be contained. And I would say that neither should ours. It is interesting that in this passage there is somebody who tries to contain his worship. His wife says it's undignified. But David will have none of it. In fact, he says to her, later on in the passage, he says to her, I will become even more undignified than this. I don't even know what he means. He's dancing and singing in his undergarments. He says, the young women who are looking at me are going to honor me for this. Because he could tell what was on her mind. And he does all of that because he wants to simply honor the Lord. By the way, she ends up having no more children the rest of her life because of her comment about David. Now I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. You know what I just told you about the word agaliosis and the exuberant joy that's supposed to be there in this word. There's a verbal form of that, a galiaomai, and it's found a couple of times in 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 3. I'm going to read several verses here. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's interesting, again, 
this kind of verbal praise, just praising God, it's not one of our five acts of worship. But, if, but we should do it. In, this great, in His great mercy, He's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the, re- of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He's talking about what God has done for us in Christ. And then he says, in this you greatly rejoice. And you can just imagine what the word is there. It is not glad. The word there is greatly rejoice because they're trying to capture a galiaomai. They're trying to say, this is incredibly exuberant joy that we have in Jesus because of what he's done. Look at what he's done. And now we're so excited about this, the text says. He says, now, for a while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. They're in the middle of suffering. They still have this kind of joy. These have come on you so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. A galiaomai. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So there's an incredible joy expressed twice here in this chapter that is supposed to be ours in Jesus. And my point is, is that if we're going to be people after God's own heart, we have to be filled with this kind of joy. The fact is, we're a pretty staid people. It's hard to get us to offer displays of joy. This morning, even though it said right on the screen, clap, Jonathan had to coach us through being able to go, and you know, this is kind of the extent of our joy. How are you doing in the Lord? And I think God wants more than that. And I understand that we have different personalities. We're not all going to be as exuberant as others. But it better not be because there's no joy in our hearts. And it shouldn't be because of what we're afraid others might think. And it shouldn't be because we think we're all supposed to act the same. And it shouldn't be because we find it on some list we think that exists that limits what we're supposed to do in worship. Praising the Lord verbally, shouting to the Lord our praise, raising our hands to exalt Him, I pray these would indeed be who we are. And that they wouldn't bother us if someone did them for their good and holy. So what if Jonathan, in leading us in worship, asked us all to start shouting praises to God all at the same time? What if I said, okay, first this section, let's all praise the Lord together. And you all stood up and just started praising the Lord out loud. These people over here, they're going, what in the world has happened to these people? What are they doing over there? We wouldn't know what to do with this kind of praise of God in our assemblies. What if Jonathan said, church, shout out to God how much you love him. There might be one or two. Randy Tyson would do it. If John Casella was here, he might do it. But the rest of us, we'd all just be sitting there thinking, oh, look at Randy. Or look at John. What if all of a sudden Miles jumped out in the middle of the aisle 
and started bowing down in worship to the Lord. These people over here would be standing up to see what's going on. Do you know that in John chapter 4, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he starts talking to her about worshiping in spirit and truth, the word for worship there inherently has within it the notion of bowing down before the Lord. Proskaneo. It means to bow down in worship. Now we could legalistically say, okay, well, first John, or I mean, John 4 says we're all supposed to proskaneo, we're all supposed to bow down before the Lord. I guess we all better do that. We can legalistically say that, but the point, of course, is not how close are your hands or your face to the ground when you're trying to worship God. That's not the point. The point is, where is your heart when you worship the Lord? And why doesn't this somehow come out in the ways in which we worship Him? Nowhere, by the way, have we ever said that bowing down before God is one of the acts of worship. Even though John 4 specifically says the ones who worship him in spirit and truth are going to be bowing down before him. And we don't do it. And God wants us at least, at least in our hearts to do it. And for us to miss that is simply to miss and violate the teachings of Jesus. Well, of course, there is no list. God wants us to bow down in our hearts a long time before he wants us to bow down on our knees. The question is, are we willing to praise him with an abundant joy? Are our hearts and our spirits so filled with his spirit that that's how we could worship? Are our hearts and our lives being lifted up as high as David's were, as a man after God's own heart. And so what would it look like if we took this seriously? What if John Casella all of a sudden just burst into praise in the middle of our assembly? What if I was preaching one day and John just got so motivated by whatever he was hearing from the word of God that all of a sudden John just stood up and said, Praise the Lord! Jesus, thank you for letting us all be here today. This is glorious and wonderful. Most of us would just wonder what's going on. Has John lost it? Doesn't he realize that there is a modicum of decorum that we're supposed to enjoy here? And John might turn to us and say, are you kidding? Modicum of decorum? I'm going to become more without modicum and decorum. Just as David did. I want things to be done in good order. But oh man, I pray that we as a people of God were so filled with His Spirit that when we worshipped, these kinds of things would just come out in us because we were just overcome by the presence of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Lord, I praise you and I thank you that we have the the freedom to worship you like you had your early church worshiping, like you had David worshiping. Father, I pray that you'd fill our hearts and help us to see the limitless ways in which we can acknowledge and praise you as Lord. 
Bless us that we might worship you with all of our hearts completely devoted to you. Help us to express abundant, incredible joy at what your son has done for us. We pray these things through Jesus. Amen.